as Joe said, prophet, priest, and king. And one thing I would add is just how this weekend we're trying to look at the fact that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, how that answers to, uh, speaks to, and satisfies three areas, three fundamental areas of human desire, right? And so last night we talked about how Jesus Christ as prophet uh, answers to our desire for truth. Uh, that all of us wanted, we want to be in the know. We want to know what's right. We want to know what's real. And that Jesus Christ as prophet reveals it to us. Uh, but this morning we're going to consider Jesus as priest and how the priesthood of Jesus answers to the deep human desire for absolution or atonement. Uh, those are 50 cent words, but really the questions that they're trying to answer, I think they're questions we all ask. Am I enough? Uh, am I okay? Am I good? You ever wondered that? I know that I have and, and many have. And Jesus Christ as priest uh, answers to these deep questions. And so we're going to read Hebrews again, 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, and hopefully by the end of this weekend, you will really uh, have a grasp on this passage as we as we read it uh, three times each each session. So let's Read once more our single sentence, you'll remember, uh, from uh, last night, uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have uh, given to us your word. Lord, as we uh, rise up this morning uh, with grogginess in our bodies and uh, that tension in our eyes, Lord, we pray that you would uh, just grant us grace to hear. Lord, we ask that you would revive us again according to your word. Um, may we see Jesus, and in seeing him, may we be satisfied by him. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this is a very dense sentence, right? If you wrote a sentence like this in Expos 101, you probably would not get good marks, but it makes for good theology. And uh, we're going to zoom in just on one statement. comes in verse 3. After making purifications for sin, he sat down. Very simple statement, but it's a profound statement. And and from it, we can really uh, reflect on three things. First of all, we're going to talk about our need for purification. Secondly, our, the provision for purification. And finally, the power for purification. Now, that'll work in Xbox, you know, you use some uh, parallelism there. But the need for purification, the provision for purification, and finally, the power for purification. So if you've ever read uh, the letter of Hebrews before, you might know that it is one of the, it offers some of the richest reflections on the person and work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And uh, one of the primary ways that the author speaks about Jesus is as our priest. It's all throughout this book. Um, 
that he is the great and perfect high priest who ransoms us from our guilt and cleanses us of our impurity. But as you hear that sentence, and now if you were to walk up to one of your friends on campus or in your workplace and you say, you know, Jesus is our priest who ransoms you from your guilt and cleanses you, purifies you from your sin, they might look at you sideways. Because we don't, you know, these words, uh, priest, purification, guilt, ransom, they it's just, you know, a lot of people think, well, haven't we kind of moved on beyond this thing? Haven't we uh, done away with sort of this ritualistic uh, blood sacrifice kind of world that is the Bible? Are these really still sensible categories uh, for making sense of our experience? Well, I want to invite you this morning to sort of uh, lay aside your modern sensibilities, uh, lean in to this text, and I think what you'll realize is that the author of Hebrews is actually addressing one of the deepest needs uh, in human life, and that is our need for cleansing, for purification. I said it before that all of us are answering or asking these kind of soul-searching questions, right? Am I okay? Am I enough? Am I good? And the reason why you ask those questions is because you are aware that you possess within you a deep inadequacy. That there is this uh, defiling stain on your soul. That there is a, a sense of alienation that you experience. Being alienated from yourself, alienated from others, ultimately alienated from God. And what's changed between kind of the ritualistic world of the Old Testament or even many uh, places in the world today, the only thing that has changed is that we've redefined what defilement is and we've sort of re-engineered the process for purification. But what we haven't done is gotten rid of uh, the categories. We still want to know, uh, am I enough? And how do I find an answer to that question? How can I know that I'm right? And so this is what gives rise to this, this feeling of being unworthy, of being unclean, of needing purification. You know, I caught a glimpse of this recently. I was watching, a, uh, I was watching Jonah Hill's documentary, Stutz. Anyone seen this? You know who Jonah Hill is, Pineapple Express. Um, that's the first one that comes to mind. He's in other things, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, yes, yeah, that's right. Okay, um, very good, very good. Thank you, class. Um, so Jonah Hill, he, he made this documentary. Uh, he made the movie, and it's called Stutz. And the whole movie is just a series of candid discussions between Jonah Hill and his, psych, his uh, therapist, Phil Stutz, hence the name Stutz. And uh, they're talking about Jonah Hill's journey through, you know, just his, his personal history, anxiety, pain. It's very interesting to watch a comedian talk about kind of uh, hardships and mental health and hurt like this. And it's a really, uh, throughout the, the film, he made the film because he wanted to expose the world to Phil Stutz's tools, as they're called. They're these visual visualization things that kind of help people, help his patients work through work through stuff. And it's a very fascinating film. It's very, uh, very spiritual in many ways. There's this very transcendent sense to it, a lot of God talk. Um, but there's this scene in particular that I think taps into this need, persistent need for purification. So th there's a scene where uh, Stutz is describing one of his visualization tools, and it's called the snapshot. Uh, he says that, that all of us have this image in our mind of what we imagine to be the perfect life. And it's an image of something that doesn't exist, 
but it's something that you live by and it cripples you. Um, and it's, it was an interesting point, but it's at this point that Hill kind of breaks, kind of interrupts him and, and offers this very honest confession. This is what uh, Jonah Hill says. He says, before I met you, I'm this like wildly insecure kid. And I think that success and rewards will absolve me of the pain of life. So I work so hard to get that snapshot. And because of my privilege and luck, I get to go into that snapshot relatively early. And when it didn't cure any of that stuff, it made me beyond depressed. See, what Hill is talking about most fundamentally is a need for purification. The need to be, as he says, absolved of pain. Washed clean of insecurity, delivered from his depression. And the place where he says that he found this purification is in the office of a psychiatrist. And so what's going on here? Well, I think what's going on here is you have the redefinition of defilement in psychological terms, right? And so uh, you take the moral categories of guilt and shame, and then you start to speak about the psychological categories of low self-esteem, of, of unfulfilled desire. And where do you go to get purified? What's the process for purification? You go to the professionals. You go to the priests of our day, the psychiatrists himself. They, they are the ones who have the tools for your cleansing. Now, please do not mishear me. I, in saying this, I am in no way trying to diminish Jonah Hill's uh, struggles with mental health, nor am I trying to say that there is no place for therapists uh, to help us work through uh, the trauma or experiences that we may have faced in life. That's not what I'm trying to do. My, my point, the point that I'm making to, trying to make is that you can drop the language of priests. You can stop talking about purification. You can, you can cease to use the word guilt, but the realities to which they point persist. Right? Uh, the New York Times columnist David Brooks put it well. He wrote this. He said, religion may be in retreat, but guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. Religion may be in retreat, but guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. And so you can try to distance yourself from God. You can try to minimize the moral significance of guilt. But what you can't do is escape its presence and its power. We have what another author called the strange persistence of guilt. He said it's, it's, it's strange because we were all told that when God dies, guilt dies with him. But the problem is, a lot of people in our culture say God is dead. He's, you know, he's, not, he's not relevant. And yet, they can't shake their sense of inadequacy. They can't, sense, they can't shake their sense that my life isn't worth living. You know that there are more deaths of despair than there ever have been in our country? More people are, are dying from narcotics and different things like this, right? Why? We're, we're a prosperous people, and yet so many people cannot shake this sense that my life is not worth living. Um, and, and I would actually argue that in our moment, there, there's even, it's even, there's a greater range of things to potentially feel guilty about, <laughs> Because as uh, technology has advanced and, and as you have access to the whole world in the palm of your hand, you, you can see you're more aware of all the things that you're guilty for. 
you can go on Netflix and watch like any documentary that just makes you feel like a miserable person. Like I'm, I'm polluting the earth. You know, I am not decreasing my carbon footprint. I'm eating food that is like killing me. Every clothes, every clothing I wear is, is from some sweatshop in a different country. It's just like, you feel this weight of, of guilt. And it's like, I, I can never give enough to the poor. I can never pursue a, enough uh, justice. I can never do anything that would kind of render me morally blameless. And so guilt hasn't gone anywhere, right? It's still, it's still here with us. And I, it gets worse, though, because when you, when you make guilt a psychological category, a, a psychological problem rather than a moral problem, you actually rob yourself of the hope of purification. Because if there is no sin, then there's no redemption. See, if, if, there is no, if there is no such thing as the good, and there's no such thing as me violating it and incurring guilt, then all I'm left with is kind of this vague sense that something is not right with me. And I need to find someone to absolve me. And so I run around and say, tell me I'm enough. Tell me I'm okay. Show me I'm all right. And so instead of, instead, of, instead of looking for redemption, we try to manage our guilt. And there are so many ways that, that people try to do this, right? Some people blame shift. My parents made me do it. Uh, my teachers made me do it. Satan made me do it. You ever hear that one? The devil made me do it. Um, fan favorite. Uh, others... Others ignore their guilt. They dismiss it. Uh, they define it away. Moment of confession. When I was in high school, a group of friends and I went to uh, Six Flags at Fright Fest. Uh, and I was at a very fragile state in my life. I was trying to prove my existence to these individuals, trying to prove that I could be a part of the boys, as it were. Uh, and uh, on the way back to our car, I, I don't know whose idea this was, but we're a bunch of boys, so we're idiots at this stage of life. You know, our prefrontal cortex is not developed. So we're, we're running through the parking lot in Six Flags, like grabbing car doors, seeing which ones will open. <laughs> yeah, figure that one out. So uh, we're running, and I pull the door, and pop, it opens. We're all like, and now we're all like, well, what do we do now? We didn't think this would happen. <laughs> and we thought they were all going to be locked. Turns out there's, there's one that's open. So we, uh, I, I like go in the car, I open the glove compartment, and there's a camera. And they're like, bro, I'm like, bro. I'm like, I'm going to take it. They're like, you won't take the camera. Steal the camera. Close the door. You know, we run off. They're like, yo, Joe. Yeah, you're like, BA, bro. You know? Um, so, so we get home. We get home, and I just felt so stinking guilty. And what I did was I took that camera, and I had a box of comics under my bed, uh, that I had collected over the years, and, and uh, I think they were from, like, cereal boxes. You remember when they gave comic books in cereal boxes? Anyway, so that's not besides the point. Put the camera in this, in this box, slide under my bed, never touched it. And then when I got married, you know, years later, I was moving out, and I remember opening that box and looking at that camera. I just thought, wow, what a metaphor for how I tried to deal with my guilt for so many years. Put it in a box, throw it under the bed, and dismiss it and ignore it and hope no one sees it. Perhaps that's how you deal with your guilt. You know, others of us try to um, deaden ourselves to it. And so you medicate, self-medicate. You shop. Uh, you get drunk. Um, you try to do anything 
to numb yourself to and to release you from the will, the gate, uh, the, the weight, the guilt, the weight of guilt, sort of, you know. Uh, other, way, other, other ways that people try to deal with their guilt is by fixating on the guilt of other people. You know, why do you love gossip? Why do you love running people down? At least in part, it's because you're trying to find purification from your guilt by magnifying the guilt of other people. I can prove I'm okay by showing that they are not okay. Or maybe you try to find purification through achievement, right? That's, that's Jonah Hill. He works really, really hard, but in the end, what does he say? He says it left him only feel, feeling depressed. And so you might, not, you might never speak of guilt. You might never use that word. But in all of these ways, you are trying to deal with its inescapable presence in your life. But there's one more way you might try to deal with guilt, because there are some of you in this room who uh, probably hopefully, at least most of you would acknowledge that guilt actually is a moral problem. That you would, you, would, you would agree that guilt is most fundamentally a result of your failure to be and to do what God has called you to do in his law, right? You acknowledge there is such a thing as capital G good, and I have uh, transgressed it. And you, so your conscience is burdened by that. You might be thinking right now of things that you have done that you hope people will never find out. But the way that you try to seek purification is through penitence. And so what that is, is you try to prove to yourself and you try to prove to God that you know you're wrong by beating yourself up and making yourself feel miserable. And so even though you know that you fail, you're going to hate yourself and thereby prove to others that you're actually good. It's sick, but it's what a lot of us do. Right? I'm going to prove to God and to others that I'm actually a good person by showing you how much I hate myself for all the bad things that I do. But all of this is insufficient. Right? All of these ways that we try to deal with guilt are really nothing more than, than methods of self-cleansing. And you might opt for this religious route of kind of penitence and self-flagellation. You might opt for a non-religious route of denial or, or positive self-talk. But in either case, you're left with your need for purification. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to know that purification has been provided for. That brings us to our second point, the provision for purification. Right, Because once, once you acknowledge that guilt is a real thing and that it is something that is stemming from your inability to do and to be all that God has required of you, then you can actually put yourself in a place to receive God's provision for purification. And don't miss that. It is God's provision for purification. See, I think the, the secular tendency is to, to, to dismiss and to demoralize guilt, but then they still try to find ways to purify themselves. The moral or the, the religious tendency is to acknowledge guilt, to acknowledge its moral significance, but then you just employ these kind of desperate self-help efforts, trying to cleanse yourself through penitence. But the proper Christian response, the way that you are supposed to respond to your guilt is to acknowledge your sin, to say about your sin what God says about your sin, but then go to the very God whom you've offended and he will cleanse you. So long as you hide 
Jesus can never heal you. But the second you come out from hiding, he will heal you. Right? The problem with Adam and Eve in the garden was not, well, obviously the, the, their, their rebellion was the problem. But what the, then they compounded their mistake. Rather than coming out and say, cover me, what they do? They covered themselves. So long as you try to cover yourself, God cannot cover you. You have to uncover yourself in order to be covered. That is the logic of absolution, the logic of atonement. And so the question is, how has God provided for our covering? How has he offered and given us purification? And the answer is through, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect priest. But I want us to understand and appreciate something more of this provision because this idea of priesthood is very, uh, it, it is not a, a category that we operate with. And so we have to kind of rewind the tape and press pause at Exodus 28. Now, uh, you can find priests in the Old Testament way before Exodus 28. The, the Bible opens with a priest in a garden temple. That's who Adam is. But it's in Exodus 28 that you have the formal establishment of the priesthood. And it's there that God chooses Aaron and his sons to stand before him and to serve at his altar. And the priests in Israel, they served a variety of functions, right? The priests would uh, teach the law. The priests would stand as guardians uh, to the most holy place, uh, bodyguards of the temple, as it were. Uh, but their most fundamental role was to serve as mediators between God and the people. The priests were professional substitutes. Uh, their job was to stand in the gap, to provide uh, for the people the uh, sacrifices uh, that they needed to remove the guilt produced by their sin and restore them into fellowship with God. And so it was, it was through the priests and more specifically through the sacrificial system that God provided purification for his people. And so if you were an Israelite and you were asking yourself, am I okay Am I enough? Am I good? You would look to the tabernacle. You would look to the ministry of the priests, and it was there that you would find comfort. Because you would realize, I didn't set this tabernacle up. I didn't institute a priesthood. I didn't outline this sacrificial system, but this is something that God has graciously given to provide me with purification. Now ask yourself this. Have you ever thought about the sacrificial system as grace. You know, I think a lot of us, uh, maybe, I know I grew up this way, I, I would read the Old Testament and be like, man, they had to do a lot. You had to make sure you didn't eat that, wear that, do this, stay, make sure you were, like, clean, you know, uh, so many laws. But actually, those things were gifts. Because God said, I want to dwell with you. I, the holy God, want to dwell in your midst. And so I'm going to actually give you this whole system so that you can dwell with me. The priesthood and the sacrificial system was a gift of grace. It was, it was, a, uh, it was God's provision. But of course, there was a fundamental problem with the priesthood. The first problem is seen in the fact that they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Every single priest not only was a substitute for the people, but he had to offer sacrifices for himself, which shows us his guilt. But their personal guilt is more clear when you kind of look at the history of Israel. As you look at the history of Israel, you have the priesthood that's established in Exodus 28. But by the time you get to the period of the judges, the priesthood is, is falling apart. 
And then you read the prophets, and the prophets are often offering their most scathing critiques against the priests in Israel. And so the whole history of the priesthood in Israel is one of shame and one of dishonor. Eventually, so much so that in Ezekiel, the glory of God leaves. God says, I'm out of here. Y'all are jacked up, and I give you this priesthood, and they don't even abide by it. But this creates a massive problem. Because if the way for purification is through the priesthood, what are you going to do when the priesthood falls apart? Now what do you do? Now where do you find purification? But throughout this whole history of failure, there are these threads of promise. So for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, the wicked priests of, uh, of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, after they... Um, create this, abominate the, the tabernacle as it were, God says this, he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. You think in the prophets of Zechariah 3. In Zechariah 3, uh, Zechariah the prophet, he sees this vision of Joshua the high priest, and Joshua the high priest is standing there with clothes covered in crap, literally. That's what it says, that his clothes are covered in excrement. And Satan is standing there accusing him. And it's at this point that God should have been like, you're defrocked, you know, take off the collar, take off the turban, find a new occupation. But instead, God purifies him. And he makes a promise of a future priest. And the point of all of these promises is that God will not leave his people without a priest. He will not leave them in their guilt. He will provide purification. And the author of Hebrews says that this provision is found in the fulfillment, it finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the great high priest, the one who through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God, he has provided for your purification. He is the professional substitute, the one who lived the life that you owed to God and then died the death that you deserved so that you could be pardoned, so that you could be restored to fellowship with God. And in the opening sentence, the author of Hebrews is highlighting this for us, and he's doing so in two ways. He's showing us the perfection of Christ's priesthood. First of all, he shows it to us in verse 3. Right Before he talks about making purification for sins, he talks about the sonship of Jesus. Because his point is to show us that the reason why Jesus' purification is possible, the reason why it is perfect, is because he is the very Son of God. That before he can be perfect priest, he must be perfect Son. Because as the divine Son, he is without sin. Jesus does not need to make purification for his guilt. Jesus is not dying on the cross for him, right? He, he came for us and for us, our salvation. And when you think about every other system of purification, and we've talked about this earlier, is it, it all relies on you and your strength and your effort and your own will. But if you are defiled, then you can't provide purification for yourself, right? That which is dirty cannot make clean. We need someone who is himself pure, and that is who Jesus Christ is, the high priest who is himself without guilt. 
But the perfection of Christ's priesthood is also confirmed when it says that after making purification for sins, he sat down. You might just think, okay, it's good. Take a seat, right? Um, But there's more to it. And the author of Hebrews captures this in chapter 10. He says this in, in Hebrews 10, verse 11. He says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. The point is that every method, every means that you employ to try to prove to yourself that you are okay, that you are enough, is not going to work. It will always be standing, as it were. But Jesus Christ, he takes your guilt and he sits down and he says, it's done. You don't have to stand up anymore. You don't have to keep running on the treadmill of trying to find pardon and absolution and peace. Right? It's, it's an act that can't be repeated. It's something that cannot be added to. He's, he's sat down and he invites you to come and sit with him. And so let me ask you this. Where are you going with your guilt? Where do you go with it? Do you try to explain it away? Do you uh, try to use self-help to try to shout out over it? Try to out-talk it? Do you make up for it by being miserable? The proper way is to confess it. The blessedness of confession. To come to the very God to whom you have sinned against and to say, here it is. Here is all my dirt that you already know. I'm going to lay it before you. And would you make me clean? Friends, I plead with you to not do anything with it other than bringing it to Jesus. And when you do, you're going to be able to say this with David in Psalm 32. Happy is the one whose transgressions are, are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happy is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, I grew up in a church that there was no confession of sin. There was no assurance of pardon. Everything was like, you know, happy. Uh, But the problem is, if we come to worship God, but no one in the room ever wants to stop and acknowledge the fact that we're sinners, then we're all just kind of like clapping along and being happy, but we're not dealing with the elephant in the room. I need to confess my sin because I need to hear the assurance of pardon. I need to hear, you're okay, because Jesus is enough. I was reading this book, or it was this guy, it was like an HBO show, this detective, and he was talking, he was talking with someone, and they were asking him, like, you know, he, he kind of was the guy who goes into the room. You've seen it, the show, right, the double window, and there's some, like, guy comes in the room, sitting at the table, like, trying to elicit a confession from these people. Um, and he said that uh, his job was so easy because everybody wants to confess. Everybody wants to confess. Because we want to know, can I actually be healed? And the gospel invites you to do that in a safe place, to confess freely. And then you can say, happy am I who have been forgiven of my sin." This is God's provision for your guilt. 
But our last point that we need to talk about is that the provision that God gives you, the purification that he provides you, it's not just for you. Um, but that, that the freedom that we experience from personal guilt actually comes with a power that makes you and I agents of purification. What do I mean by that? Well, you see, Jesus Christ not only recovers the priesthood and provides full and final purification for his people, but he actually, he also reproduces the priesthood. You see, when Christ rose up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the God of of majesty on high as this, this royal high priest, what he does is he then sends forth his spirit who makes you and me priests. Listen to how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2. He says that in the sight of God, you are chosen and precious to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are not just pardoned from your guilt. You're not just uh, purified and cleansed, but you are empowered for priestly service. This is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, that Jesus Christ has purified you and has made you a royal priest. And so if that's true, what kind of priestly activities are you involved in, right? Uh, anyone watched uh, Nacho Libre before? <laughs> Love Nacho Libre, right? He's like, uh, what is, what's to say? He says, oh, man, there's this line, uh, dead guy duties, right? He's like, I got, and he goes, uh, uh, he's, uh, he says, uh, I have all my priestly duties, dead guy duties, <laughs> baptized duties, and he's, uh, and he's doing all these, these duties as a priest, um, as a monk. Oh, man, sorry, I just, I just saw Jack Black, dead guy, dead guy duties. Uh, but you have, you have dead guy duties uh, as well um, in one way. But sorry, that was, that was off track here. But uh, okay, so you, yeah, you're, you're a priest, the question is, what does that mean? What, what kind of priestly activities are you to do? I just want to, I'll be brief here. I just want to give you two, two things that, that it means, that what it means for you to be a priest unto God. First of all, it means that you are called to holiness. Um, Jesus is your substitute. He is the great priest who has offered up himself in your place. Praise be to God. But that does not mean that we can then go and live however we don right please. Um, but we're actually called to live lives of unparalleled holiness because we've been made priests to our God. And he has clothed us with his righteousness, right? And, and don't, don't miss that point. You are clothed in holiness that's not your own. What I'm not saying is Jesus Christ has, has purified you. He's forgiven you. He's given you a clean slate. Now get out there and manage your Christian life. Keep it together. Make sure you keep yourself pure. No, because the gospel doesn't just give you a clean slate. It gives you a full slate. You have the perfect righteousness of Christ. You have a full slate. You are clothed in his holiness so that you might serve in his power. And so you're called to holiness, but you're called to live out a holiness that that you already possess in Christ, right? And that's why uh, you oftentimes people say, become what you are. That's what sanctification is about. Become who you are in Christ Jesus. 
You already are declared righteous, and now uh, sanctification is simply the application of the righteousness of Christ to you personally so that you become what you already are in Christ. But secondly, your calling as a priest means that you have priestly duties at the altar. Uh, and now our sacrifices are not natural, but they're spiritual, right? No, uh, I'm not telling you, like, go to the meat market and hopefully they have some live cows available and get to it. Um, no, but we offer spiritual sacrifices. And our spiritual sacrifices are, are sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. And we also offer sacrifices to Jesus when we do good to others. This is how um, the author of Hebrews describes it in Hebrews 13. He says, through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then he says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Right? And so when you sing and when you serve, you are offering a sacrifice to God. And I, and I want you to not miss that point, that service is a sacrifice to God. Because it is so easy when we talk about justification and atonement and, and being made right with God to think only in personal terms. Like, all, it's all about me and getting right with God. And, and yes, you need to be made right with God. But the reason why God restores you to fellowship with himself is so that you would actually then be a blessing to others, right? Your purity is not just for yourself. It's for the sake of others. Why did God call Abraham? So that he would be a blessing to the nations. Friend, you are a, not friend, family, you are a priest to your God. And so you get to offer sacrifices of service by doing good to others. That's priestly work. Those are your priestly duties. Uh, it's not dead guy duties. Uh, it's, it's doing good to those who need us. So let me close with a spiritual sacrifice of praise from the hymn Before the Throne of God. These lines capture really all that I've been saying this morning. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. Don't look anywhere else but upward for, for purification from your guilt. Right? Jesus Christ is the sinless Savior. He is the perfect priest. And so go to him and to him alone. Let us pray. Our God, we thank you. That although uh, Satan may tempt us to despair, though our conscience can accuse us, the static that we feel in our souls, oh Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who has silenced the accuser, who has silenced the, the accusation of our own conscience, who has provided perfect, full, final purification. Oh, Lord, forgive us for trying to manage our guilt by ourselves in whatever way we have. Lord, help us to go to Christ and to receive from him the pardon that we all need to know that, yes, I am enough in Jesus. I am okay because of Christ. I am good because of his goodness imputed to me. Remind us of these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>